The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, and chapter 10, verses 1, 5, and 16. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus said, I am sending you out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, how, how in the world am I supposed to preach after that, right? Uh, my goodness. I have a, a friend who's a minister and a professor, and he talked about the habit of, you know, many churches that the pastors at the back doors, people go out and they have to, you know, say something to him, and he calls it the glorification of the worm ceremony. And uh, so uh, you, you guys were so kind, and it is so moving uh, to be here, and to be here and see so many old familiar faces, and I just mean old, that we've known each other a long time. That's all I mean by that. Uh, and, and especially to see the new faces, uh, and just so, so thankful. You know, from, uh, I think it was Becky who mentioned, or somebody in the video, that we, you know, these were sort of the wonder years in some ways, and uh, Camelot, just God did, and sometimes, you know, through the years, people have asked me, how do you explain the early years of in town? And I just have to say, it was a work of God's grace. It was just a work of God's grace. It was the gospel bringing a congregation into existence. Uh, it was what God did. And it wasn't because uh, we were smart or talented or had the right strategy or the right anything else. It was just the work of God's grace. And, you know, when, when God has done something like that, you just have to be very careful to give him all the praise and all the glory and then uh, acknowledge people that were so critical and so key uh, in, in those years. I want to say this, though, right up front. Uh, the greatest years for in-town are in the future. And you need to believe that with all of your heart. Uh, the greatest years of encounter in the future. God is going to do great things and is doing great things uh, through this church. Margaret Ann and I often say, when people ask about our kids, we have two sons, we have two daughters, and our fifth child is in town. And uh, we really felt that way. And, and that means for me, there, I often tell people, besides my family, there are no two people on the face of the earth that I'm more thankful for than Terry Geiger and Jimmy Hagen. And I really do mean that. Um, One, a gift of God to you as an interim pastor uh, that was used, and one, your pastor now, who is so greatly gifted in every way. And uh, Jimmy, thank you to you and your elders, your deacons, your staff for having this event and for just a great way you're leading this congregation. And uh, I praise God for that, and I'm thankful. I do have a message I'm going to bring in a minute from the passage that Suzanne read, 
But before that, I, I do want to say a word uh, to some of the old folks that showed up today. And I hadn't planned to do that, but I kept hearing there are people coming back that don't normally uh, go to church here. They've moved away out of town. And so I want to say a few things that's really based out of this scripture. Philippians 1, I thank my God. Every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to its completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And I do want to say both of those things. I'm thankful for every memory. I'm thankful for all the people who came to know Christ here. I started today to start telling stories of conversions, and I thought, when I start, I don't know where to stop. Uh, God just did wonderful things through the conversions of people, just through the fellowship of his people, people who are discipled, pe disciple, people that were engaged in ministry, uh, people whose lives were changed because we were on a mission together and we were experiencing the grace and love of God together, the weddings, uh, the baptisms of adults and of kids, and just so many wonderful, beautiful memories. And there were, there were funny, funny things too. Just two little stories of that. In the first two or three years that Morgan and I were here, we had a retreat for discipleship group leaders. And a guy named Brian Etchison was playing his guitar, and we were singing, and we did Amazing Grace to the tune of Peaceful, Easy Feeling by the Eagles, okay? <laughs> that was a thing back in the day. And when we got through with that, Tom, Tom, yeah, here's Tom. Tom raised his hand. He said, I want to sing a Monty Fortress to the tune of Jumping Jack Flash. That is Tom Salt humor in a nutshell. I just loved it, loved it, loved it. Another story is of Bill Holby. I don't know that Bill and Stephanie are here today, but Bill was an elder in the early years. He's one of the funniest people I've ever known in my life. And I think Bill or some, uh, either an elder that served alongside Bill in this little story told me about this, that Bill was interviewing a young lady who was joining the church. She was working as a nanny for Jane Seymour, beautiful British actress who had a home here in Atlanta. And Bill was like, wait a minute, you know Jane Seymour? Yeah, you work for Jane Seymour? You go to her house? You could introduce me to Jane Seymour? <laughs> and finally she said, Bill, you're an elder and you're married. He said, oh, that can be changed. <laughs> And it's even funnier if you know Bill, my goodness. Uh, God was just so faithful in so many different ways. And I have to say this, you know, as we talk about the faithfulness of God, uh, there are hundreds of people I could point out, but two I can't uh, fail, and that is this, uh, the leadership of Randy Pope in Perimeter Church. In town would not have been in town uh, if we had not been a uh, location of Perimeter Church first and his leadership and his uh, contributions in the shaping of what we were doing. And it was an amazing thing and very, very thankful. And secondly is Scott Seaton. Uh, Scott was my right-hand man for 12 of the 13 years that I was here. And talk about a servant leader. And then for lay leaders, one person after another that I see right here, many of you still here at the church all these years later, and some that have maybe gone to other churches, too many that could be counted that God used. And so I thank God for all of my remembrances of all of you. And the second thing I would say to the old crowd is this, and to the new crowd too, is be confident that God will complete what he started. 
He'll complete that in your life, and he will complete that in this church's life. He finishes what he starts. And if you've been around a few decades, you know that doesn't mean that things always go as you expected, right? I have a good friend who's also in ministry who said, Bob, because God loves you, your life will not turn out like you planned. <laughs> and that is true. God brings surprises, and those surprises become blessings. And so uh, things are going to be different than expected. But I'll tell you what, God will end and complete what he has doing in your life. He will keep molding you into the image of Christ if you will keep seeking to have a malleable and soft heart before him. And he will complete uh, what he has started. So uh, thank you for being back here today. I want to bring a few remarks out of uh, the passage that was read, and I want to start by bringing a connection between that and three things that your church is about right now. I really, really appreciate these things. I see them in your foyer here. I see them in your bulletin. That is that we're a congregation changed by grace, known in community, and sent to restore. I love it. Changed by grace, known in community, and sent to restore. And there's a key word in our passage today, and that word is compassion. Compassion. You're probably aware that surveys have indicated and conversations with people that are not followers of Jesus will tell you that there are many people out there today that do not want to come to our churches and they do not want to hear our gospel, unfortunately, because they do not perceive us to be people of compassion. May that never, ever be true. And may we be deeply repentant if that is ever true. And it doesn't make any sense because of this. If indeed you have been changed by grace, you have experienced the compassion of Christ. If indeed you were living in community with one another, then the only way to do that is to put on a heart of compassion toward one another. Fellowship can't go past someone's refusal to have compassion toward someone else. And thirdly, if you indeed are being sent to work with Jesus in the restoration of all things, that is a mission that is marked by a heart of compassion. Not a heart of self-righteousness, not a heart of political or spiritual or religious triumphalism, not a heart of, of superiority, none of that. But a humble zeal to give away the compassion that we've experienced. And it's all about the compassion of Jesus Christ. Uh, the passage today has two parts, okay? I don't have a printed points to remember for you and blanks to fill in. A few of the old guard have already asked me about that. Jim Wirt used to delight himself in filling in the blanks before I preached, you know. And he was right. 80% of the time, I'm not hard to predict, you know. And hopefully it comes right out of the text so you can figure it out, right? So there are two parts of our passage today. Our master's description of the multitudes and our master's command to his disciples, okay? If you're a note taker, just two big points. Our master's description of the multitudes, that's in verses 30. 5, 36, and 37, and then our master's command to his disciples. That's in verse 38 of chapter 9 and in the first few verses of chapter 10, okay? So that's where we're going, and it'll be easy to follow along. Let me read for you again the first part of this passage to remind us what it says. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Uh, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
How does Jesus here describe the multitudes two ways? I think you'll see them on the screen. Sheep without a shepherd and a plentiful harvest. Sheep without a shepherd and a plentiful harvest. Let's look at those one at a time. First of all, sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's true. It's Matthew who says that that's true of the multitudes. But I think Matthew said it because he heard Jesus say it. And so this was Jesus' description. Now, sheep without a shepherd is obviously what? It's a picture of absolute helplessness, right? Sheep are absolutely dependent upon a shepherd in every way. They can't defend themselves. They're not fast. They don't have claws that are big. They don't have teeth that are big. They can't hide themselves. They're absolutely easy prey for any predator. Uh, sheep can't find their, their own food and water by themselves. The shepherd has to lead them. Sheep become easily lost. A uh, sheep might wander away literally 40 or 50 yards from the rest of the flock and stand facing in the wrong direction and panic until the shepherd comes and turns them back around. Oh, there's the rest of the gang. I know where I am. And sometimes sheep, if they fall over, they, they can't right themselves again. Uh, if you're like me and you're on Instagram, you get one of the reel sent to you after another, and you realize, I've just wasted 20 minutes looking at all these reels on Instagram. There's one that's hilarious. It shows uh, sheep in a trench, and there's a shepherd pulling his, one of his hind legs, finally pulls him out of the trench, and he goes bounding off, and then literally in four seconds, he's back in the trench again. <laughs> that's why Jesus has to seek us out over and over again. You know, that's you and me. And that's everybody else out there. Uh, they really are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I remember a long, long time ago seeing the cover of a People magazine when I was coming out of a grocery store, and on the picture was the photo of a beautiful actress who had a hit movie out, and on the front page around the, the cover of the People magazine it said, a hit movie is not enough, quote, I feel totally alone and scared. You know, Henry David Thoreau said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation, and it's really true. And the reason you know it's true is you know your own heart, and I know my own heart. How deeply do I need Jesus? And those people out there do too. And they may look like they got their act all together, but in fact, it is true that Jesus says, no, these are people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And you need to go love them and take care of them. I want you to later today, maybe go back through the previous two chapters of Matthew and see one example after another of how Jesus shepherded these people. He brought healing to people, restoration to them. And that was to point ahead to the restoration of all things when Jesus comes back again. And it says in this text that he did that to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. So let me ask you, who are the people around you that God is calling you to be a healer in their lives, to be a person who brings gospel words and gospel deeds and brings some sense of restoration to them, that you would love them, that you would care about them, that you would understand that despite all the bravado and all the opposition to our faith that might be displayed and everything else, deep down inside, they're like sheep without a shepherd. I know of a young man who's a very brilliant engineer, not a believer, not a follower of Jesus. He's got a head, great future in front of him. He's brilliant, but he's plagued every day by anxiety and fear, distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Believes that that's true, and let's give them compassion. Secondly, it says here that the text that Jesus describes the multitudes as a plentiful harvest, a plentiful harvest. 
now, let me ask you, do you believe that's true? Isn't it true for you and me both that sometimes we, we shy away from explaining the gospel or sharing the gospel with someone out there because we really do not think they're ever going to believe? We become pessimistic that anybody out there is going to really believe the gospel and turn toward Christ, and so we back away from this calling of being people who share good news. Well, I want to tell you there's an upside to our theology, and our theology tells us this. There are indeed people out there who will believe when they hear the gospel. They may not believe the first time they hear the gospel, but eventually they will believe, and there is no doubt that they will believe. God is after them, and God will find them, and God will save them. A guy named Michael Horton, a professor, has said, when I share the gospel with people, I have the imagery that I'm putting a lightning rod in their hands. It's the means of grace to have the gospel. And then after I put the lightning rod in their hands, I just sort of stand back and see if God brings the fire from heaven and shocks them to life. I like that. Because we need to believe with all of our hearts and all of our minds that there are people out there that once we put the lightning rod of the gospel into their hands, it may not be today, but someday they will indeed turn to Christ. And if we believe this about those out in the world uh, then, and our neighbors and we know it of ourselves, it ought to do two things. It ought to give us great compassion like Jesus. These people are hurting. It ought to give us great optimism. These people are like a, a harvest, ready to be brought into the kingdom. There are people who will believe our gospel. That's Jesus' descriptions of the multitudes, okay? Second thing today, what is Jesus' command to his disciples? Let me read these verses too. The last verse of chapter 9 and then the first verse of chapter 10. He says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. And he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease. Verse 5 of chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out. Verse 16, I'm sending you out. Jesus commanded his disciples to do two things, to pray and to go, all right? To pray and to go. The first thing he says here is to pray. Okay, the labor shortage for the kingdom harvest is first of all addressed through prayer. We just ask God to send out workers into his harvest. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, 19th century British preacher, said this. And he said in a little book called Counsel for Christian Workers. And notice it's not just Christian ministers, it's for Christian workers. And he says, we're to pray to the Lord, for it's the Lord's business. Only the Lord can send us the right people. He has a right to send whom he wish, wishes and pleases, for it's his own harvest. And a man may employ whom he wills in his own field. It would be all in vain to appeal to anybody else. It's of no use to appeal to bishops to find us laborers. God alone has the making of ministers and the raising up of true workers, and therefore the petition must be addressed to him. Pray ye therefore to the Lord of the harvest. We see here, one commentator said, this is the beginning of the ordained and non-ordained ministry. We used to, back in the day here, talk about every member a minister and every member a messenger, and it's still true. God has called all of us as his people to serve other people and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need to pray for that to be happening, and we need to ask God to thrust forth labors. A story I heard many, many years ago of, uh, from Dr. Frank Barker in Briarwood Presbyterian and uh, decades ago. And the story goes that there was one of the businessmen in their church that they just saw, this guy was very gifted for ministry. 
And so Frank and some of the elders went to him and said, we want to encourage you to, to consider vocational ministry as a missionary. And, you know, you would be great at this. And he responded by saying, you know, there's no way I can do that. I have financial obligations. I have a business that I own. And there's just no way I can do it. And Frank said, okay, we'll pray. We'll pray. And so he and a few others began to pray. And the story goes that a few months later, this man came back to Frank and said, in the most amazing series of events, all my financial obligations are met. My business has been sold to somebody else. There's no reason I can't go. I feel called to go. And how did that happen? It happened because Frank Barker and a few other people started praying. Pray that God sends forth workers into the harvest. The second thing that Jesus says here is go. He basically says, I... I'm going to commission you to be the answer to your own prayer. <laughs> you go, bring healing to people, and share the good news with them. You go, you go. Now, you may be thinking, I thought this was exclusively for ordained ministers and clergy. No, just as I said, God calls and uses all of his people. And the main thing he wants from us, my friends, is this, simply a willingness and I would challenge you that what God wants of you and of me is this. If I have experienced the compassion of Christ, if I have been changed by his compassion, he wants me to be willing to do three things. Number one is to have a heart of compassion toward other people. I have to tell you very honestly, it is ruining and breaking my heart these days to see people who claim to be followers of Jesus who have no compassion for other people that are broken and other people that are sinners. I'm thinking, who do you think you are? You're a sinner. You're broken. You're estranged from God apart from his grace. How can you have anything but compassion for someone else? Their issue may not be your issue, but you've got issues. <laughs> and you needed the compassion of Christ. Put on a heart of compassion. Are you willing to say, Lord, give me a heart of compassion, not a heart of judgmentalism, not a, harsh of le not a heart of legalism, a heart of compassion. Number two, are you willing to serve? I know for many, many years in my life, I was fine to talk, to the God, talk about the gospel to people. Finally, I woke up that I need to sort of serve people too, because <laughs> that precedes it. Uh, Jesus served people in need. He did things that brought healing to their lives. And for every one of us, we need to say, Lord, would you give me a heart of compassion, and would you give me a willingness to be a servant? Maybe a servant to people that don't even appreciate how I'm serving. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but I'm willing to serve them. I think back to the years of our ministry here at InTown, and in some ways connecting with ministries of mercy and justice, not because of my leadership in any way, but because of other people that said, no, this is very important. And when AIDS began to spread, there were members here that said, we need to take the gospel and serve these people in need, when it wasn't very popular at that time. Partnering with ministries in the city that cared for the poor and the needy, and right around one another serving. And the story of one pastor, person after another who came into our church were, was the story of somebody in our church who befriended them and served them and helped them and in some way brought some healing to them and in that process then shared the gospel. Am I willing to care and have a heart of compassion? Am I willing to serve? And number three, am I willing to be trained how to explain the good news of Jesus to other people? Very often there is a right caution that if I start talking about the gospel, I need to do it tactfully and winsomely and appropriately and truly. And that just means this, every one of us, we need to be trained. We need to be helped. 
of knowing how to rightly describe the best news anybody will ever hear in their whole lives. One of the strengths you have for your church is this. Your pastor knows how to lead and preach and teach in a way that you are hearing every day, every Sunday, how to explain the gospel to other people. Because he keeps explaining it to you every Sunday. And when he does, it's ongoing training of how to share it with other people. Let's return to this picture of labors and the harvest. And let me give you here, you'll see it on the screen, four qualities of an effective worker in God's harvest. And it's simply this. Number one, willing to work. If you owned a farm and you wanted to hire somebody to work in the harvest, they've got to be willing to work, right? You're not going to send them out and pay them if they're not willing to work. And the truth of the matter is, befriending people and loving people and serving people and caring people, yes, there's an aspect that it takes work. We have to go out of our way. It's inconvenient, but it's a blessing, a willingness to work. Secondly, a, willing to be tra- a willingness to be trained in how to work. Let's say you hired somebody in your farm and you sent them out and said, okay, it's time to harvest I'm going to you go back to the back 40 and start harvesting our, our crops. Do you want me to give you training about our machinery? Oh, no, no, I know what I'm doing. You go do something else. You come back and you check on that employee about noon, and to your horror, you see that he's plowing under your harvest. He's not harvesting your harvest. Why? Because he was not willing to be trained. So there's got to be a willingness to work. There's got to be a willingness to be trained. And number three, a, a confidence in God's provision and God's promise. If God has said that there's a harvest out there, we need to believe him. (laughs) If he said he's going to give us the means to go and share and love and care, we need to believe that and access ourselves to those things. Then finally, to be motivated by a heart for the harvest, something to, to love and to care. Nobody is born with an innate knowledge about how to harvest corn or cotton or, in a sense, how to bring a harvest of love to people whom God loves. But he's called us to that. So there's, there's simply, there's the outline of the message. It's rather simple and straightforward. I'm a very simple preacher. I'm not real smart. That's a good contrast between me and Jimmy. Your pastor is very smart. Remember at the Presbytery meeting where Jimmy transferred into our Presbytery, a couple of people tried to challenge him with some tough questions. And let's just say, Jimmy sort of let them know he knew what he's talking about. <laughs> and I turned to the guy next to me. I said, I think Jimmy's a pretty smart guy. I'm not nearly as smart as Jimmy, so I, I just have to keep it simple. So I'll keep it simple this way, okay? His description of the multitudes, they're like sheep without a shepherd. That should give us compassion. They're like a harvest that's ready to be brought in. That should give us optimism. And what is his command to us? His command to us is pray. Ask that God would throw us out there. And that word is throw. This word for sending people into the harvest is not the word apostello for apostle. It's the word ekbalo. Ek is out, balo is to throw. May God literally throw out workers into the harvest. Pray, pray, pray. And then go. And go with a willingness simply to love and to serve and to share with people the greatest news that they will ever hear. Margaret Ann and I have a tradition we've had for a few years now. She's still teaching school five days a week, and by the time we get to Friday night, uh, she's ready not to cook. She's ready uh, to... Sometimes we go out, but usually it's like, well, I don't even want to bother going out. And so it's takeout, right? It's usually a burger, and uh, some people call it takeout, and some people calling it takeaway, all right? I want to give you four takeaways, <laughs> four takeaways to end this message with so I don't lose you. And here they are. Number one is this. We simply love because he first loved us. We go because he came. 
That is the indicative of the gospel. That is the statement of what the gospel is. Before there are gospel imperatives of what we're supposed to go do, there are the gospel indicatives of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. And my friends, before we are indeed uh, under shepherds, we are simply sheep that have found the good shepherd. And we are under shepherds with that understanding. The great shepherd has found me and he is taking care of me and every day I need him to be my shepherd. And before we are workers in the harvest, we are the first fruits of that harvest. Jesus who has come to us and brought us into the household of God. And so every day, my friends, the thing that will change your life is living in the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything I wish I had done differently in my years with you, it would have been making this truth of the gospel centerpiece in every single message, every single sermon, everything Jesus-oriented. I was just beginning to get in touch with that about the time that I left you. But your pastor is excellent at that, and that is where you begin. You begin with always having your heart resting in Christ. And this is not an obligation you have to go do and work and sweat Yes, we go work, but we work while we're resting. We're resting in Jesus, and as we rest in him, we do the work of his rest of simply giving away the compassion that we have found. So know this and believe it. We love because he first loved us. We go because he came. Secondly is this, ask God to make you people of compassion. Good deeds and good news. Let me recommend a book that you maybe have heard of already. I heard about it from Tim Keller a few years ago. Larry Hurtado's book, Destroyer of the Gods. And in the Destroyer of the Gods, basically, Hurtado talks about why in, the God, why in the world did the gospel change the world in the first three centuries of Christianity? What was it that led people to believe in Jesus? And yes, they had their apologetics. For the Jews, they had an apologetic out of the Old Testament, out of the Scriptures. And for the Gentiles, they had an apologetic based upon Gentile philosophy and arguments for who Christ is. But the thing that really changed the world was simply this. They were people of compassion and love. Hurtado has pointed out that Christians in the first few centuries were known for this. They loved the poor. They took care of the poor. Even the leaders of the Roman Empire noted, these Christians take care of our poor besides their own poor. Secondly, they were people who believed in racial reconciliation. And there were people from every ethnicity and tribe and tongue that were in churches together. Because often in the Roman Empire, yes, there were different ethnicities, but they stayed in their own quarters. They stayed in their own places. They didn't mix. But Christians followed Jesus together. Jew, Gentile, Scythian, slave, free, they were all in the same congregation together. Thirdly, they stood for life in a culture that threw away babies that were unwanted. And when abortion could be practiced and maybe keep the the mom alive, that was there too. And the old and the aged often were unloved. And Christians said, no, we will take those unwanted babies. And when those Roman people would put babies out to, to die or to be found by the wolves, they would go out night and find those children and adopt them. They were known for their commitment to life, and they were also known for their commitment to the purity of the marriage bed. Sex was not for them an expression of power, and in much of the Roman Empire, sex was for power. Young people had no rights, and women had no rights, and a powerful man could do whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted, and Christians said, no, this is a gift of God. It's for man and woman alone within the boundaries of marriage and they meant it, and they lived it. And then lastly, they were committed to loving and forgiving their enemies. Now, you might notice out of those five issues, two of those issues are connected to the, the, to the ideological left, and two of those issues are connected to the ideological right, 
And nobody today believes in loving their enemies, right? <laughs> and Hurtado is very right. The reason the gospel changed the world in the first three centuries is Christians loved better than anybody else. They had a heart of compassion beyond anybody else. And God will use us if we can escape the categories people want us to stay in. And we will love as he has called us to love every time. Ask that we would be people of compassion. Good deeds giving away good news. Thirdly, that we would be people of faith and vision. Faith and vision. Jesus is the one that said there's a big harvest out there. Who am I to say there's not? I don't know exactly where that harvest might be. It's across the street or across town or in another country, but there's a great harvest. And we need to be people of faith and people of vision and believe that God is going to do great things. And lastly, this willingness to become workers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is talking to his understudy Timothy, and he says, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's the grace of God that will give you strength. He also says in that passage, remember Christ Jesus raised from the dead. My goodness, when things are going poorly or when things are going well, there's, there's nothing better you can do than remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. But in between those two things, he says to Timothy, be like a soldier who stays focused, be like a farmer who works hard, be like an athlete that competes according to the rules. In other words, yes, have a willingness to work. And I want you to be very, hear me very well. We never put our faith in our work, but our faith produces work. We never put our faith in our work, but our faith produces work, a willingness to be workers. Let me say this as I bring things to a close. Why have I chosen to preach this passage for you today? Well, over 40 years ago now, uh, when In Town was getting started, I'd known Randy Pope since we were kids. He's a little bit older than me, and we grew up right down the street from each other. So Randy came knocking on my door, so to speak, to see if I would come and take this congregation. And at first I said no, uh, because I'd given a two-year commitment to the Presbytery you know, over there in North Mississippi to plant. And secondly, I was dating this girl named Margaret Ann Ruff. And we were not engaged yet, but I thought it was going that direction. And so I said, I just can't come right now. So Margaret Ann and I got married, and then after we got married, in town stayed on my mind, and, uh, and Atlanta stayed on my mind. And Margaret Ann was teaching school at that time as well. I was taking Mondays off, and one day she got up and she went out, out to school, and she said, you know, you've got to stop thinking about in-town Atlanta. Today, I want you to call Randy and find out that they've got a pastor for in-town. And she said, I'm going to call you at lunch to see if you did it, okay? <laughs> Good wifely accountability. And so, you know, I, I hated, uh, hey, you know that job you offered me last year? You know, is that still available? So I didn't call, but that morning, uh, the phone at the house rang. <laughs> you know, God saved me in a big way. Uh, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and the voice on the other end said, Bob, this is Paul Kiros, I'm one of the elders at InTown. We've been looking for a year, and we still think you're our guy. Would you reconsider? And I sort of leaned back against the bedpost and sort of slid to the ground, and, and I thought, God is in this. And Margaret Ann called me at lunchtime. Well, did you call Randy? Well, no, I didn't. But well, let me tell you what happened. <laughs> and so when all that transpired, we, we came and we interviewed again, and the elders and others said, yeah, we think you're our guy. And then there was the candidating sermon down at the LaVista Women's Club right down the street. And this is the passage I preached, and this is the outline I used at that sermon. 
And then 10 years later, when we had the 10-year celebration, I preached this passage again in 1993. And so I thought I would keep preaching the passage until I preached it correctly. <laughs> uh, you know, we've, we've looked back with great thankfulness. But again, I want to say, look ahead. The greatest days of this church are in the future. The greatest years of fruitfulness are in the future. God is going to do and is doing great things in and through this church. And God is calling you to do this. He is calling you to look out. When Jesus talked with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and his disciples came back, and he was shocked that he was doing something so terrible, talking this to Samaritan, a female, alone. It was just one thing after another that was scandalous, right? But he told her the good news about who he is, and she went back and she told the village, and the whole village was converted. And the disciples were just like, what's going on? And Jesus said, don't, don't think the harvest is sometime in the future. He says, look out right now. The fields are wide into harvest. And that's what I would want to tell you today. Look out. Why? Because when you look up, Jesus is pointing to you to look out and to care for these people who need him. And they're broken like you, and they're hurting like you, except you have Jesus and they don't. Go and give them the compassion you found. And may God do wonderful things for the glory of the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your wonderful work of 40 years here. And Lord, just like in our lives individually, it all doesn't play out just like we planned. There are valleys and there are hard chapters and there are difficult days that we didn't count on, that we didn't want. But Lord, somehow we believe with all of our hearts, you take everything and you work it together for your good, for your glory and for our good and for the blessing of the nations. And so Lord, we thank you that that is true here. May you continue to work in and through this congregation in powerful ways. And we give you the glory for every little thing that's been good in these last 40 years. Lord, we look forward when all things are restored and we get to see you face to face when there is a new heavens and a new earth. And may we remember that all these words and actions are simply the signposts that will point ahead to a greater and more beautiful reality. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.